You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. Leave the World Behind, which came out in 2023. It was directed by Sam Esmail. It stars Julia Roberts, Mahershala Ali, Ethan Hawke, Mahila, Farrah McKenzie, Charlie Evans, and Kevin Bacon. The genre would be apocalyptic drama slash thriller. There's something wrong with the TV. It's all messed up. I wonder what that means. What could it mean? It could be over in a couple of hours. You know something. I'm sure this will turn out to be a big nothing. We'll look back on this one day and laugh, I guarantee you. I think that ship is heading towards us. Oh. What? What, what? What does that mean? We shouldn't speculate. Haven't you been picking up on what's going on out there? I don't want to panic over nothing. I don't think this is nothing. We're in this together until things get back to normal. There is no going back to normal. Get in the car! Whoever's pulling the strings wants us to finish it. We're going to be okay, right? Yeah. Well, it feels like now once a year, Netflix releases a new star-studded apocalyptic story just in time for the holidays. I really quite liked a previous episode, Don't Look Up, from two years ago, even though it was a bit bloated and too far up its own ass at times. White noise from last year was, well, fine. I don't feel like it reached the silly heights that Noah Baumbach, the director, was going for. And that brings us to this year's End of the World tale coming from Sam Esmail, who created Mr. Robot, which I've been told is quite good. A mixture of sinister and satire, which would also be a good way to describe this tense, though often funny, tale of shock and isolation on Long Island. It focuses on two New York families who both end up holed up in some luxurious Airbnb mansion in the woods. Well, actually, the house is owned by Mahershala Ali's wealthy numbers analyst, G.H. Scary massive blackout has taken over New York City. He's returning with his college-aged daughter, Ruth, played by Mahila, and they come back to find a small Manhattan yuppie family who rented the place, with Julia Roberts playing the acid-tongued Amanda and Ethan Hawke as her more affable husband, and their two children, a horny teenage boy, played by Charlie Evans, and his younger sister, Farrah McKenzie, who, when she's not getting freaked out by increasingly bizarre animal activity outdoors, seems almost 100% focused on finally catching the final episode of Friends, which she's watching on her tablet, of course. Dad, the TV isn't working. Oh, easy, baby. Come on. Dad, can you fix it? Uh, yeah. Um, well, now it's snow. Last night it was a blue screen. I wonder what that means. What? Yeah, see... No, it's just, it's not working. I'm aware. Can't you, like, reboot it or something? Or go up on the roof or whatever? No one's going on the roof. I am definitely not going up on the roof, okay? But I'm gonna go to the store later, and maybe I can find something that, you know, help. You know, get one of those, uh, some rabbit ears or something. Why would a rabbit's ear help? Speaking of tablets, one continuous theme of the narrative is everyone's reliance on modern technology and how rapidly things start to feel more and more dire 
as they become less and less connected. The story presents us with a steady stream of bizarre occurrences, which not only keep you as a viewer sufficiently on edge, but also providing several generally well-written, also Eshmael adapting Ruman Alam's novel of the same name, opportunities to examine each of the four adult characters, more often Robert's and Ali's characters, both of whom give sterling performances. And they're both initially very much at odds. The breakdown of trust among humanity also becomes a running theme, though gratefully not in a ham-fisted manner akin to a Crash, you know, the movie that won Best Picture in 2005, or even The Mist, the latter of which is a movie that I love, love that ending. But wow, do they overdo it with the Marsha Gay Harden character. Ain't his fault. No, no, no. Ain't nothing ever anybody's fault. But he denies it. He points the finger, this Judas in our midst. Judas! You, you. No doubt, things do get heightened among the key players here, but always in a more grounded manner. Honestly, for the first 100 or so minutes, this movie just churns effectively with a few critical moments of levity thrown in. It's honestly on par with just about any end-of-the-world thriller that I can recall. Now, I do have issues with the third act of this movie, though they're not the typical ones I usually would with this type of genre, and they're mostly in relation to the appearance of one particular character, who I'll get to in just a bit. There is also a final monologue, which, while delivered very effectively, feels not only unnecessary, but a bit overblown. It's as if the movie tries a bit too hard to explain itself. That said, there's still some very haunting imagery, which has the desired effect, along with the very last ending shot, feeling just about pitch perfect in tone. Thanks to DP Todd Campbell, who also worked on Mr. Robot, everything just looks great. There are no shortage of overhead shots following characters at different times, which just add to the tension. Of war. Collapse. This program was considered the most cost effective way to destabilize a country. Because if the target nation was dysfunctional enough, it would, in essence, do the work for you. started this wants us to finish it and this brings us to the categories the first category would be the best needle drop this is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film because music is essential to film now i know that for most folks who have seen this movie there has been a consensus choice for this category the needle drop it's the opening theme for a beloved sitcom which plays at the very end of the movie And undoubtedly, the placement of this song is clever, and it can be interpreted in both ironic and unironic ways. But as far as I'm concerned, nope. There's actually a better choice. And yes, it's an arguably cheesier choice, but I just don't care because I'm a sucker for scenes like this when they are done right. We are about 80 minutes into the movie, and finally the two respective families seem to be bonding a bit amidst all the apocalyptic harbingers they've witnessed. It all starts with alcohol, of course, as we see G.H. and Amanda sharing several bottles of wine as they start to discuss what's going on. Amanda even owns up to her own despicable treatment of G.H. up until that point. 
and G.H. takes her down to a basement study of his where he has this massive record collection. He wants to put on a jazz record, but Amanda chooses something different. She wants something she can dance to. And the record she chooses, well, consider me shocked that I was not aware that this particular song was such a huge R&B hit back in the 90s. I don't remember it, to be honest. But even more so, the dancing. Well, it is quite the sight as we see Amanda wave her hands in the air, as Mahershala apparently attempts to out-nerd her with his hand gestures. They circle each other, then laugh and hug. It's a truly disarming scene, which I'm sure was the intention. Oh, and the song? None other than Minneapolis' own Next and their 1997 number one smash, Too Close. As much fun as this scene is, the cherry on top is having it on subtitles and reading those lyrics. Damn. category would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now back to that third act. Well, there's a sort of climax towards the end of the movie, which to me just kind of feels like a letdown in relation to everything which preceded it. It's not even as if the story goes off the rails or loses focus or even twists the characters too much. It's just that much of what happens just kind of feels rote, like we've seen it before. It's hard to explain, but it just felt more familiar akin to scenarios that we have seen play out in these types of movies before. I mean, to be fair, the writing and acting seems to be on point. But if like me, I'm just talking about me here, if you have seen just about every disaster slash apocalyptic thriller from the past 20 years, from the day after tomorrow to The Walking Dead to World War Z. What do you need? A funeral. The whole trope of a prominent character suddenly getting sick so that at least one of our protagonists has to go to extreme lengths to get the medicine, well, it is a trope at this point for me. So for me, it just didn't land that strongly. And at the center of this scene is the reappearance of a character who was only hinted at early on. And this would be WH's survivalist neighbor, Danny, played by Kevin Bacon, the man. Hey, I love the Baconator. (laughs) He's always... (laughs) A great name for him. He's always been one of those virtuoso character actors who just delivers no matter what's on the page. He can be warm, he can be menacing, and sometimes he even dances. Initially, his Danny seems to carry some kind of menace, and the overall setup for this scene is somewhat tense. But what mainly occurs during this scene is, unfortunately, exposition. In fact, it seems that the main purpose for this character is to mention the existence of a certain place which plays into the final scene. The whole thing is kind of just a bit clunky in its execution. And it's kind of a waste of Bacon's talents, unfortunately. I would do anything to protect my family. What you do is your business. And this brings us to the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Now, I don't want to spoil it too much if you haven't seen it, because this just came out. But the complete breakdown of technology takes center stage in one particularly inventive sequence about halfway through on a highway overpass. 
You stay with the kids. I'm gonna go take a look. Let's just say that it involves Teslas, and it walks a fine line between harrowing and absurd. Just a fantastic set piece. This brings us to the final category, the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. At the end of the day, this is a director's movie. You need a savvy hand at the helm to build and maintain tension on this scale, even if it does fizzle a bit towards the end. With this just his second feature film, and the first one with a real budget, no less, Esmail more than delivers. And he does take some swings here. I mean, some major swings. The Friends ending, Robert's breaking the fourth wall at the beginning. And I saw all these people starting their day with such tenacity, such verve, all in an effort to make something of themselves, make something of our world. I felt so lucky to be a part of that. But then I remembered what the world is actually like. And I came to a more accurate realization I fucking hate people. Her and Hawk just kind of going for it with their performances, that bizarre opening credit sequence, and definitely some askew shot selections at points. And as far as I'm concerned, most of those swings connect. I mean, is it any wonder just how divisive the reaction to this movie has been? Some folks are raving about it. Others are just trashing it as if it was the latest M. Night Shyamalan thriller. And speaking of which, undoubtedly, I could see M. Night directing something like this. Hell, there are undoubtedly some similarities to his thriller from earlier this year and previous episode, Knock at the Cabin. Now, I liked that movie, and I probably even like this one just a tad better as it's a bit more artfully directed with better overall performances. Sam Esmail is the MVP. And so um, that was that was something that um, my DP and I, and my production designer, I tried to use in terms of the setting and and uh, and also my composer and the music to kind of create this sort of um, you know the shots sort of linger a little longer than they should or they're kind of moving in places where they shouldn't be and the production design is sort of kind of weirdly claustrophobic in an inorganic way. But it, it, we, we always talk about like tension is like like pulling a rubber band apart and just how long can you keep stretching it without snapping it? And that was, that was the idea that we were all going for. My rating for Leave the World Behind would be four stars out of five. I am just always a sucker for apocalyptic thrillers whenever they're done well. And thanks to its stellar cast, overall premise, and the quality of the writing, this one mostly delivers to the point where I would have loved to have seen it on the big screen. Unfortunately, Netflix had other ideas. Shame, shame. And of course, if you're looking to watch Leave the World Behind, it is currently streaming on Netflix. And that ends another disconnected review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Cinema.